Dougie, you ready? Let's roll. I love it. Jesus declares that on occasion, a storm will come that tests whether our practices are built on a rock or upon the sand. As we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, we unpack five shifts the church must make to ensure our foundation is on the rock. We want to welcome you to the next episode of the Disciples Made podcast. It's episode six of season two. And it's our third shift that we've been talking about. We've been talking about moving from church programs to intentional disciple-making environments. And Rob, for the first time, we have somebody on our podcast who's more than twice as bright as both of us together. Are you sure you want to do this? Well, I'm, I'm confused. I thought this podcast was on shifting from gas grills to Traegers. Well, that's, a, that's an important shift to make. We like to smoke meat, Rob. And we like to share. <laughs> and a half a continent separates us. So so am I on the wrong podcast? That's what I thought we were talking about. Because that's all you guys ever talk about. But Doug, you're not a Traeger guy. You're more of an egg guy, aren't you? I've got a big green egg, yep. Big green egg. That's what I thought. I've heard, I know that both are doing great. So no, Rob, we are actually inviting somebody on, twice as smart as both of us put together, to talk about the shift of moving from church programs to intentional disciple-making environments. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, a good friend of ours, Doug Paul. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And if we want to talk smoked meats or we want to talk about Jesus, we can do it all. All right, so Doug, you know we've been uh, spending some time uh, talking about one of the parables that Jesus mentions at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about um, how when a storm comes and it can take out stuff that's not built on the rock. And we're trying to look at practices in the church to see which of those that we have are currently built on the rock and which ones might at least have a mixture of sand, if not fully on the sand, and trying to do what we can to level up everything. But before we get into that in this episode, give us just a quick background of what you're doing right now in ministry and the one thing that perhaps separates you from what others are doing across the country. Yeah, I live in Richmond, Virginia, and I I get to uh, I do two things vocationally. Um, I, I started in, uh, in Richmond about five or six years ago. I was a, uh, the co-lead pastor of a church here in, in a really poor neighborhood. And all of our time, energy, resources are focused on about two square miles of real estate. That's the sixth highest concentration of poverty in the United States. And there are about 36,000 people that live here. And we've got a network of house churches that are all located and multiplying and making disciples within those two square miles. So really dense. Um, It's crazy. And so I did that for uh, three or four years full time. And when, when I was hired with the the outcome in mind of like scaling it back to a day a week. And so I've made that transition and so continue to help pastor that church. And am also, I, I work with churches, networks, and denominations around largely the United States, but doing some work in Canada, uh, Australia, and Europe as well. And just helping helping them create, let's call them disciple-making environments that multiply. Hey, I got to know uh, Doug under the second part of his vocation uh, where he was joining uh, the new thing team to help us innovate help us upgrade um, some of the catalytic environments we had created and he's one of these guys that um, within a few months of getting to know him I felt like oh this is a a brother that I got separated um, at birth and I'm so glad to find him and he's been one of the um, 
one of the greatest treasures in the last three years has been your friendship, brother. And that's kind of you. Well, funny, funny little backstory. Back in the the early aughts, when blogging first took off, a young Rob Wegner started a blog and was just cataloging his journey in church leadership at this pretty influential church out there in the Midwest. And uh, I, I found his blog, I think, circa 2004 or five, and have known about Rob actually for a long time before I actually got to meet him. That's something else we have in common, actually, Doug. I, I knew Rob from a uh, Future Travelers webinar well before he ever came to Westside and we became, you know, ministry colleagues and friends. So I got to know him from afar before getting to know him up close. And he gets better the closer you see. All right, stop, pivot. And like a fine wine, he only gets better with age. Well, okay, yes, that's a good that's a good thought there. Hey, tell us a little bit about you just had a book come out. Tell us a little bit about that. We got to make sure we get that in there. Yeah, I had a book come out called Ready or Not: Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World, and it is in many ways what the title and subtitle suggest. Uh, it is about what it looks like for us to be innovators in the church and beyond, and why that is. I think one of the great missing skill sets of leadership right now, um, it is not the only tool in our tool belt, but it has got to be one that we all, we, we all have. We've got to be in, in this world that is changing as fast as it is with so much uncertainty. We have to be able to ha- have that, that skill set of innovation. So that's what the book's about. I tried to write it a little bit differently. So it reads more like a Gladwell book uh, or an Adam Grant book and not so much like a bullet by bullet you know, here's the how-to version of this thing. I'll let the readers decide if I was successful in that or not. <laughs> I've read all of Gladwell's stuff, and you did a masterful job of kind of the case studies and narrative form. It's so helpful. I've seen Doug as a practitioner um, watching him at the local level, and he's got some amazing stories. One of them I definitely want you to share earlier. What started with one IDE that literally became a movement of hundreds of reproduced disciple-making groups. Um, And then just recently, at the beginning of COVID, he and I worked together on a coaching initiative that within about six weeks, it scaled out to about, what was it, Doug, 10,000 church leaders? 10,000 churches. It was bananas. We were hoping we could do 50 or 100. (laughs) Right. You know, speaking of COVID, and B, we're interested to get your perspective you know, uh, Andrew Crouch has talked about his COVID just, is it just a storm? Is it a winter season? Is it an ice age? You know, here we are at the beginning of 2021. And I think a lot of church leaders are holding their breath, hoping, okay, vaccine, hopefully things will kind of snap back here in three months to normal. Uh, We're just curious, what's your perspective? You know, we're a year into this about, uh, how would you answer that question, which of those three is it? And why do you think that? Well, it's, I should I should preface my answer by saying, one, I'm not a scientist, and two, I'm not a politician. And so all I can do is share my my own little thoughts on this. So one of the one of our elders helps run the Medical College of Virginia's hospital here in Richmond. He's the person that we've been talking to the most, trying to plan out what we're doing as a church. And our current thought is that probably the beginning of April is when enough people will be vaccinated and definitely the most high risk people are going to be have received vaccines that it's going to start feeling more open uh 
and uh, like across the board. And so I, if, I, if I think that's true, which would put it at well over a year since this thing happened, I would probably categorize it as a long, long winter. I don't know. I mean, the ice age is probably like three or four years. We would be thinking more like Spanish flu. I don't think we're there. Um, the mortality rates aren't nearly as high as Spanish flu. That, that year-long thing is about where I think it's, it's going to be a little bit more. But a long, long winter froze a lot of stuff for longer than it, quote, was supposed to. And I think we are going to be feeling like the reverberations of COVID for a very long time. I don't, my, my sneaking suspicion is we're not going to know the full ramifications of it for the church for probably three or four years. Okay, I'm going to ask you to put on your futurist hat. Uh, give me one or two or three things that were put into a deeper freeze that you think are going to have lasting, lingering effects. What, what are the things that are in mind? Yeah, I mean, some is just obvious, right? I mean, you've got the research that's saying for your your pre-COVID attenders in church, a third of them are gone. Uh, they haven't been to an online or a live service in well more than six months. And I think there's reason to believe that they're not going to come back. Our running joke here in the Paul household is that those people discovered something called brunch. And they re they figured out that Sunday brunch is a magical thing. Like mimosa is fantastic. They like a good mimosa. They like maybe the full English, who can say. Um, but they liked that uh, more than they liked plugging in and, and watching a service while having brunch. I, I think attendance you're going to see is going to drop. I mean, you've got you know, religious news services did a prediction that one in five congregations are going to struggle to be open financially in the next 18 months. But I think the biggest thing, and it's a, it's a, it's a good thing and a bad thing, is what COVID has done if, for, for pastors and church leaders who have eyes to see it, I think, is it is, it is shown who the people are that are spiritually mature. And there's a group of people who have leaned in. And by leaning in, what I mean is that they said, this sucks. It is, I don't want to do this online. I don't want to, when we start getting back together, I don't want to be socially distant. I don't want to worry about if I'm spitting when I'm singing or if how we're singing or they, they don't like any of it, but they did it anyway because they knew one, it was good for them. And two, it was good for the people connected to them relationally who are their spiritual family. Conversely, there's a group of people who leaned out. Some of them are going to come back. Some of them are not going to come back. But I think the positive thing is it has revealed to us who we can build a future with. Like, who are the people that have the spiritual muscle memory and that's that, like the strength in their, 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 spiritual, their spiritual life that we can actually move into the future with those people? I think in some ways that's a huge help because if we can just, we got to get rid of the nominalism that is just rife in the American church. So... COVID is not a gift, but there are unintended gifts in the midst of that pandemic, I think. Yeah, that's a powerful observation. You know, we've built the prevailing model of church to engage those who are mildly interested with the hopes that they'll go deeper. And I'm for that. But Jesus was very clear that he gave his best time to the smallest group who were the most committed. And I, I kind of hear that's what you're saying. Like, we've got a picture of who are those people, you know, and, and Jesus built his, his mission on investing in those people and multiplying those people. So that's a great observation. I think what we need to 
unwind in what you just said, Rob, is we will spend 80% of our leadership time on the people who are saying no, rather than 80% of our leadership time on the people who have said yes. And we need to give them our time, our energy, our resources, our prayers, our training, our equipping, because that is the future of the church. It is not people that are like, we're, we're essentially begging them to come closer to Jesus. And like, Jesus can do that for us. We don't, we don't need to do that for him. Uh, but for the people who have said yes to Jesus and yes to be part of this specific, unique spiritual family, let's go, man. Let's, let's go get this thing. Well, we're all about trying to encourage, you know, church leaders that are on this podcast, on this call to uh, make a shift from just a smorgasbord of different programs uh, into more of an intentional disciple making environment. There's a lot of leaders on the call that are looking for just going to plug and play solutions to raise up new leaders, strengthen their churches like you're talking about, to have those people that we lean into. What do you see as the inherent danger in having that mindset? The first thing that just jumped to my mind, Brian, and this isn't to be mean, um, not towards you, but any any listeners, is I want I want pastors to start answering like, who are you discipling right now? Most pastors that I meet and that I work with aren't discipling people, and if our leaders aren't discipling people, why are we expecting anyone else to disciple people as well? I'm imagining that there's a lot of guys on the call and gals that are saying, "Wait a minute, I disciple people every Sunday." You know, every time I get up to teach, I'm discipling people and I'm spending, you know, 10, 12 hours in preparing to make sure I disciple them well. So how would you, how would you come back and respond? And, and don't worry about being kind. We want to be clear here. No, little, little antidote. I was in a conversation with somebody who was exploring our IDEs and he said, my, my biggest issue is when I talked to my lead pastor about it, he said exactly what you said, Brian, I'm not really tracking because I disciple all of our people every every time I preach, and I'm preaching two times a week because this leader is inviting him, would you invest in 12? And he said, well, I'm trying to give my best time to disciple all 300 people. That was a conversation that just happened. So this is very real. So how would you answer that? I think it's a matter of definitions and, and not saying that certain things are bad. So teaching's great. Love teaching. You do it well. There are a lot of people who are way better at it than me, and and it's really positive. So it's I think it's important to say like teaching is positive; it's not negative, but it has limits to what it can do. The the, the worship service has limits to what it can do. A small group, which is a a program based thing or Bible study or Sunday school, whatever it is that you use, they're all positive things with limits. And I think the challenge is like those are all like in the in the way that I've defined them. That is all spiritual formation. It, those are broadly forming us to go in the general north direction of orthodox Christianity that is lived and practiced in the name of Jesus Christ. That's all really, really good. But let's just not call that discipleship, which is the relational passing on of a skill set from one person to another. I am very happy that the medical system uses an apprenticeship model for teaching surgeons how to do open heart surgery. Really happy about that. I'm happy that the way that they do that is not to stick a bunch of students in a classroom and just teach them once a week how to do surgery and then all give them scalpels and say, 
go get them, tiger. Who's going to get on that table first? <laughs> Who's getting on that table? No, like you're going to, you're going to, you're going to give them a scalpel and they're going to, they're going to work on frogs and pigs and cadavers. Then they're going to apprentice under a master surgeon. And then finally they're, they're going to get a real live human being. That's what disciple. that's what Jesus did. Like, did he teach the masses? Yes. And the disciples were part of the masses, but he did a whole heck of a lot more with them than just talking about stuff. Yeah, in Hero Maker, Dave quotes, I forget the name of the theologian, who did an analysis of how Jesus spent his time in the Gospels. And it was, I think, 83% of his time was with the 12. Yeah. I mean, it's it's bananas. Like, when you actually look at it, and and I think this is the thing that that sometimes we, we have to like poke at a little is we want to know what the outcomes are like quickly. But at the end of three years, Jesus had 120 people. That was it. That's all he had. And one of his best friends betrayed him. And I mean, we all know that, that anecdote, but that thing started a movement and PS we're here today. We are part of the most successful movement that has ever been started in the history of human civilization. But three years in, there are only 120 people. Because we're talking about like an operating system versus the applications that we run. I think we don't, we don't ask, we oftentimes don't ask the right questions. And so let, let's say you're running small groups. Most people have some version of small groups. And you look at your small groups and you're like, man, these things just aren't doing what I want them to do. Well, the, the question is not, how do we fix this? The question is, why did we start small groups in the first place? And what you, will, what you will find if you dig into this long enough is that small groups are actually wildly successful at why they were started. Small groups were started in almost every church, but definitely like when they first came out in the 80s and 90s. For, for Sunday-centric churches that were getting more and more new people, those people would then leave after like six to 12 months. And so small groups were started to be relational flypaper. They were, they were meant to be like, look, the personality and the programs got you to come, but it's the relationships that get you to stay. And so small groups were started to get people to stay. And lo and behold, they're actually really good at that. But they weren't created to grow you spiritually. They weren't created to be missional. They weren't created to multiply. They weren't, they weren't, they, like, they were, what they were created for, they do really well. But what we have to do is to look at it and be like, okay, it's not just a matter of fixing it. It's actually going deeper and saying, what is the problem we're trying to solve? What do we want these things to do? And if they can't do it, maybe we should experiment with some other stuff. That's the line we got to get our leaders over is don't just, don't just noodle with this thing that is actually doing really well at what it's supposed to do. Work on the thing that you don't have anything like it. There's nothing like this thing that exists right now in your most churches. Doug, that intersects. Uh, for us, the five ingredients of an intentional disciple-making environment. Or we're saying to church leaders, basically, what are your core theological convictions about what is absolutely what you call the radical minimum? What are the radical minimums when it comes to disciple-making? So for us, we have five. And we talk about the importance of mixing all five of those in, in the appropriate amount. And so a small group could potentially become an intentional disciple-making environment. And many of them are. You've created, I, I believe you call it tables, tracks, and tools as a way for church leaders to ask those deeper questions about intentional disciple making 
what do those phrases mean? How do they relate to each other? You know, if a church leader is ready to move towards innovation, disciple making, how do these ideas help them in the process? Uh, unpack that for us. I mean, I think we've got to start with, there's actually another T in there as well, target. Um, so, it's, I mean, we're, we're all like loosely influenced by Baptist pastors, so it must be alliterated. With the target, we're asking, what does a mature version of a disciple look like? Paint me a picture of them. What do they do? What is their essence? What is their being? Um, and how do we know if we're hitting that or not? And I think right now, our target, we have not said this, but I think if, if you're just looking at what it is that the system of the American church is producing, and let's not forget that every system is perfectly designed to get the results they're getting, is we are really good at getting people to show up for a worship service. We're good at getting a portion of those people to give money, a portion of those people to volunteer, a portion of those people to be in some sort of community environment, and finally, to get nicer over time. Like sand the rough edges out. The problem with all of those is none of them require the Holy Spirit. None of them. I can do all of those and be an atheist. And so what's the point of me being a Christian if what it means here in America is that I do those things and then I die? Like that, that, that doesn't sound very compelling or inspiring. And I think we got to start with the target because what we can do if we paint a picture of what a, a, a fully alive version of a Jesus follower looks like here in the 21st century, we can then start to reverse engineer it. And that's where those, those other three T's come in. So tables, it's, it's very much like that environment setting. What, it, what is the thing that when, when we gather these group of people that we're discipling together, where you're doing it one-on-one, -on -one, four at a time, eight at a time, however many you're doing at a time, where we're intentionally gathering together in a relational setting, and we're apprenticing these people on what it looks like to grow in the character and the competencies of Jesus. In order to do that, you're also going to need tracks, meaning there's got to be a process that takes them from A, I'm a spiritual infant, to I'm a child, to I'm a young adult, to I'm an adult, to now I'm a saint. And again, none of that works without the Holy Spirit, but we've got, there's got to be a process tracks that people can run on that will take them to that. And we got to know, how does that happen? Like in our, if we've got to be, have a level of conviction that, that with the way that we make disciples and with the power of the Holy Spirit, this thing's going to happen. And then finally, like the way that, the way that we, we think about generational disciple making, meaning disciples who make disciples, who then go and make disciples, is you've got to put simple tools in their hand that doesn't take a seminary degree. It is important to realize that the average American reads at a 10th grade reading level. And it cannot be that only the smartest get to be the spiritually mature. That is called spiritual elitism. And I'll, I'll rally on that one another day, but I've got pent up aggression around that. Tell the listeners a bit of your story, kind of rewind the tape back to a time of, uh, what I might call a holy discontent. And you sort of drew a line in the sand and said, okay, I'm gonna start with this little group of people and we'll just see what Jesus does with this. You know the story I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I'd been a pastor for four or five years. I was a teaching pastor at a pretty large church and was like going up the ranks of that whole thing and had a pretty significant moment where I realized I'd never been discipled. Like no one, no one had ever invested in me. I'd, I'd given books to read. 
I'd heard a lot of spiritual talks, heard a lot of expository preaching, but no one had ever actually discipled me. I'd ask someone if they would do that. And so that, that started to happen. And the more that that happened, the more conviction I got about this. I read, you know, the master plan of evangelism. And you're like, why has no one told me any of this before? I mean, like, I know it's right there in the Bible, but like, if it was as simple as it's right there in the Bible, then every American church would be doing it who does expository preaching. And P.S., they don't. And so like there, I was like crazy that this is, how have I not heard this? So I got more and more conviction about it. And so I just got a group of people together. They weren't part of our church and was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to invite you into a season of discipleship and you can, at the end of this, you can be a part of a church, be not be a part of a church. Some were Christians, some were not who were part of this thing. I was like, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a decision about whether or not you want to go and do this exact same thing with other people. Because there was a, there's this book that had come out called A Year of Living Biblically. It was a New York Times bestseller. And the idea was this ethnic Jew, a non-practicing Jew, was like, for one year, I'm going to keep all 613 Levitical commands as best as I can in New York City. And, you know, wrote this book. And it was basically trying Judaism on with skin, right? And so I was like, well, what if you could be a disciple of Jesus? Just try it on for a year. You don't even have to believe it. You don't have to go to church, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so we, we did that for about 18 months. And the, the people who weren't Christians all became Christians, which was unbelievable to see, but also is what happened with every single disciple of Jesus at some point in their journey in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. We don't exactly know when it happened. But then almost all of them started to do the exact same thing. I eventually left uh, where, where we were located and went and did some other stuff and like lost track of like generationally what it was was happening. But one of the people was keeping track the whole time. And seven years later, comes back and was like, hey, do you have any idea what's happened? I'm like, I really have no idea what's happening because this is just a wild experiment, Brian. Like this wasn't, I, I don't know that I had grand hopes or ambitions for this. It was just a little seed nugget of something. And he's like, well, we've gotten to... It, it was into like sixth and seventh generation of disciple making. And what had started with one group had grown to 757 groups. Looking at it now, like I can see what was at work. I can see why some things worked and some things didn't. But I can also see things where I made some really big mistakes. One of those mistakes, which was, um, I don't even know how I did it. But at that moment in my life, I was incredibly cynical about the church. And that cynicism worked its way in. And that was multiplied as well. And so one of the things that the Lord really used that for me in like a season of repentance was simply around there. It's, it's okay to deconstruct and it's okay. I mean, that, that, that really is okay, but our calling is to construct and to be creative, like to be creative constructionists in what it is that God has called us to do and, and letting him build his church. Yeah. I love that. Two things you said that just highly resonate with me. Number one, uh, this didn't start as a thing. It started as an experiment. That's the story of disciples made. That's how this is all here. Jesus told me, I want you to multiply your one group into five. And, uh, the basic strategy he gave me is you disciple them for a year if they step up to lead their own group. And that's how all this started. So same thing. And then, um, you know, the last couple of years for me, uh, had a, an, a big arc of cynicism 
And uh, this year, the word for me, I had two, when I asked God for two words for 2020 or asked God for a word for 2020, he actually gave me two. Uh, the one, there was one in a green circle I'll talk about later, but the one, there was also one in a red circle with a slash through it. And that word was cynicism. And uh, God said, you know, cynicism is a great commodity or a scarce resource, perhaps is the better, re- better way to talk about that, to um, break away from something, but it's not the fuel to build something. And that was a helpful thing for me to see. It's not, it's not evil, so to speak. It's just not helpful to build. Well, let's, let's turn the corner just a little bit, Doug. You've spent an awful lot of time researching innovation, researching disciple-making, researching movements. What are some of the bright spots you're seeing right now? What encourages you about the future in spite of the COVID storm? Well, some of it I said, which was, I think we're getting the people that we get to build with are revealing themselves right now. And more specifically, the Lord is revealing who those people are. And so I think the opportunity with the pastors that that I'm getting to work with is really around praying around, Lord, would you reveal who those people are? Would, it, would you make that plain? And two, what does it look like for us to build into the future? How do we use the next four to six months where it's still winter to build for spring? What, what does that actually look like? How do we use this time of barrenness, what feels like barrenness, a fallow season to, to actually till the soil for a harvest that is to come? Some of that is, is simply like that, that spiritual practice of engaging with that. But honestly, like I, I started here actually in somewhat of a cynical place at the beginning of this podcast, but kind of return in a more positive place. The pastors who are like, I'm going to disciple people anyway, who are actually saying like, whether it's over Zoom in the backyard, though it be freezing or in the garage, having a cigar, whatever it might be, like I will disciple people because that is what God has called us to do, whether you are a pastor or not. That's where the brightest spots always are. One of the things that is really striking to me right now is the number of pastors who are feeling very disillusioned, who are feeling they're tired, deservedly so, they are exhausted, fatigued, deservedly so. They are on the edge of burning out. Um, there was like this new, this new report that came out a week or two ago that was like 70% of pastors right now would leave ministry if they could. 70%. And most won't. I mean, I'm not saying this is good, but most won't simply because their paycheck is wrapped up in it. But I think when we feel that, what we really have to do is to return to first callings and to first loves. And the first calling of a pastor is like, this is what you need to do. Go find one person and disciple that one person. Because the transformation that God will bring about in that one person's life is going to remind you of why you got into this thing in the first place. As you were answering that question, Doug, it, it, it brought on to me uh, an insight like almost an inverted insight. You know, COVID has become this storm that has caused us to reevaluate. It's, it's, it's the genesis of this whole season in our podcast. But I remember early on uh, when this whole thing started, I chose to enter into my own winter season uh, to do this. And I, and I imagine it was kind of your, your thing as well. I know how to run the big thing. I, I know how to run all the systems. I know how to leverage the stage, all these other things. I went to school to figure out how to do that. I've gone to conferences to figure out how to do that. But there was a moment where you had decided, and I certainly did. It sounds like you probably did too in the same time, is I'm just going to take the time to do the long game. I'm going to go into kind of a double play because I've got to keep the one going. And I've got to do this as well. 
Like I'm trying to think if I'm a pastor on this call, where am I going to get hung up? Where am I not going to move forward? And it's because a lot of what we do at Disciples Made is invite people to start making disciples and keep the things going that they've always had going. And that in and of itself isn't going to produce the same type of results. The disciple making won't produce the same type of results as the bigger thing for at least a couple of years. You won't start to see the movement of it. So you've got to intentionally invite your own storm, so to speak, a time where things are going to be a little bit more chilly, a time where things are going to be a little bit more barren. Uh, as far as the things you're investing the most heavily into. For, for me personally, I found that after a year and a half to two years of it, I started seeing the, the seeds that had been cultivated during the winter start to sprout up in the spring, and they gave me hope. And then three years later, you got saplings and trees, and then you've got this whole thing. Was that a similar experience to you? Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest a way of thinking about something that I'm not convinced of myself yet. I wonder at least from a a paradigm way of thinking about things, how we interpret our world is if it might be more helpful for more pastors who are working at our more Sunday centric programmatic churches to start thinking about their life co-vocationally. They have been hired to run the program, the machinery of the church, which may or may not be effective at actually doing the ministry of the church and the ministry of the body of Christ but they are being paid to do that. They should do a really good job of that. In the same way that if you work in as a teacher, if you work in the financial industry, if you're a cab driver, whatever your job is, do your job, do a great job of it and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Like we are not excused from anything just because we have the title of pastor or whatever it is. And I actually wonder if like the grid, the framework of thinking, I have a a nine to five job or whatever it is, just like everyone else that sometimes is satisfying and is sometimes severely irritating is a more helpful way of thinking than starting at the very top. We're like, how do I completely reinvent the organization that I feel dissatisfied with? That's not the way things change. It starts on the edges and it starts at your kitchen table. Man, Doug, I can't, it's so hauntingly familiar. I I got to a point when this is when I was at Granger where I was running local and global mission. And the programs involved mobilizing literally thousands of people. And I had this moment where I was standing at the end of my driveway and I realized I'm a better missionary and disciple maker on the other side of town in an at-risk neighborhood and in India where I'm spending two or three months a year than I am in my own neighborhood. Like I don't even know the names of my neighbors two houses down. And exactly what you said is what the Lord showed me. It was like, I have a job. I work for a large Christian nonprofit organization. And that does not excuse me from being a disciple maker where I live. And I repented. I actually broke down crying. And I went and I talked to my wife. And I said, "We, I'm sorry. I need to change. And can we do this together? And where we started was literally our kitchen table. Like the next dinner, we said... I, my girls were young, so I explained it to them the best I could for six and seven year olds or whatever. And we said, we want you to know our table is open. And so we're going to start having people over for dinner. And our kids were, I'm not kidding, our grocery bill doubled in like two months. And we had like this parade of kids. <laughs> and then it was their parents. And then it went from meaningful conversations to spiritual conversations to discipleship. And about a year and a half later, 
I remember one particular night looking in my backyard, about 40 of our neighbors, and I went around the corner of the house and cried again. And I was like, because what Jesus had done. But I had to make that exact shift. So I was just, con- like, pierced me to the soul when you, because sh- I'm like, I can't stop, like, my job. <laughs> and my, I love my job. I love what I'm doing. This is amazing. But it doesn't give me an out. Like, sometimes, here's what the revelation was. Pastors feel like they get credit for the organizational expression of the church, even if they're not privately doing it. And that's an illusion. Yeah, they're, re- they're rewarded for it in many ways. That That's the way the system is set up. And I think a shift that I've tried to make, and I feel like I'm having, I still continue to make it because it's a, it's one of, you know, the, the Lord is working junk out in my own heart, is there are a lot of think pieces that you can read on any given week, on any given day, if you just peruse Twitter on all the reasons to be cynical about the church. And you've been able to do that for decades. And a, a lot of it's right. And I agree with a lot of what it says. What if with the leaders that I am talking to, because all I can do is work with the leaders that I have invited influence over, is what if I thought best of them rather than worst of them in the way that I would want someone to think about me? Because every day I make leadership decisions that probably suck as well, that come from mixed places because we all have mixed motivations. So what would it look like if I actually thought they don't want their church to function like this either? They're doing the best they can. They don't want this X, Y, and Z, but they don't know how to change it. And if, if we can give people grace and space to be there, because the way that the whole system is set up, if you're going to change anything, you have to know what the outcome is ahead of time. And you have to know how to get from A to B, just like Jack Welch would as he's running GE in its heyday. And that's just not, that's not the way social movements work. And the church is a social movement. It involves people, not products. And so we've got to create space for people to just figure it out in their own lives, at their own kitchen table first, and like learn as they go so they can eventually change something because we're not going to know it at the outset. And I think if we approach things more like that, you're okay. Like you're not, you're not bad. We're in this together. So it's incredibly shaming and they don't want to be that way. Like almost every pastor I know, almost every single one had a pure experience of being called into ministry. And at some point got suckered into running a church. It's not what they wanted. They woke up one day and were like, what am I doing? But they don't know what to do. And almost everyone has had that experience. And so if we're all having that experience, why are we, 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 we can, we can actually make our way from that place to another place, but shame is not the way to go. Right on. And, and, and church leaders rediscovering their autonomy, I think is the word, like you do have power over your life and you can make some strategic changes. And if it's just with your kitchen table, like it was with me, the other thing I did is I, I did make a change in my work schedule. So I was teaching a lot because I was a teaching pastor and I love to teach and I love to research. I have a strong academic bent. So I can put 40 hours in a sermon. (laughs) I could put 60 hours in a sermon. Like give me an amount of time. I can put it in there because I'll just keep studying. And I just decided I'm not going to spend any more than a day and a half on sermon prep. And I used to do two or three days when I was prepping because the weekend was so important. You know, and, and what I found is the quality of what I ended up delivering 
didn't go down significantly. And the power of God through what I was doing went up. And I gave myself back like seven or 10 hours, which I said, now I'm going to use this to invest and disciple staff at Granger. So I was discipling in my neighborhood and then I was discipling staff. And, and that led to a totally different story for me, you know? And so it's called the law of diminishing returns. Exactly. So I just asking you as a church leader is listening right now, like what are the one or two small decisions you can make that you do have autonomy and control over? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you that. Yeah. And it probably looks an awful lot like the things that you were going to stop doing after the last super motivating conference you went to that you didn't actually get rid of and start doing such a big deal. Doug, wow, man, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Tell people how they can uh, get to connect with you more. A website, a podcast, a blog. How do they get a hold of Doug? Uh, you can go to my website, dougpaul.org. Not because I'm an organization, but because .com wasn't available. Some people are so awesome. They are an org. I also ended up as an org because of a... DJ in Chicago who beat me to dot com. Mine, mine was a radio host. That's so funny. You got to be kidding me. No, <laughs> no, it was it was a bad one too. So is this guy, man? He's like sea level D. Like if you're gonna steal my URL, can't you at least be a really good radio host? <laughs> Dude, how random is that that we both? It is pretty random. <laughs> mine was an athlete. He played that. Oh gosh, I can't. Even, it's like soccer, but with a little net on your hockey stick on your stick lacrosse uh, lacrosse thank you i just couldn't put the name of it a famous <laughs> lacrosse player brianphipps.com there so don't mean any dis hey thanks check out doug paul's stuff he's an innovator he's young he's enthusiastic he's got a processor in his brain rob i told you we're bringing download the book download kingdom the book. innovation kingdom innovation where's the best place to do that amazon amazon.com doug thanks again man Thanks for having me. Thanks, brother. We hope that what you heard today was an encouragement to you or that it increased your curiosity in making disciples that make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our experiences or set up a coaching call, you can visit us at disciplesmade.com or email podcast at disciplesmade.com. <laughs>